The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Cedar oil, sweet grass, white oak, dandelion. Skunk cabbage root. Appetizer? For bruises, not appreciated if you keep your mouth shut. Thanks for taking me in. I didn't do it for you. Just trying to figure out what kind of game you're playing at. I know this sounds crazy. But two guys jumped me. And just when things were looking really bad, a wolf saved me. I saw a woman floating above the ground, beautiful native woman. That couldn't be. I know what I saw. Probably heard one of our legends. What you're describing is the woman of the woods. And the idea that she'd protect you is blasphemy. Hey, listen, I'm not trying to offend you. The very sight of you offends me, Mr. Kowalski. What's your game? I'm here investigating a certain group of people who might be interested in the outcome of your vote. I think Alex may be one of them. <laughs> Listen, let me tell you a little story here, okay? When we had our lawsuit, the lawyers for the government were so pleased to learn that I had an eight handicap. They thought because I excelled at the white man's sport that I would just accept the crumbs from his table. Well, I saw through their little game and I see through yours. I'm not playing a game. Why is it every time I see a white face, there's always a lie behind the mask? You know, your nature is to take. And that nature doesn't change with the passage of time. Now, I fixed your wounds. There's the door. It opens easily if you turn the knob. Good morning, London. It's Thursday, July 24th, 2014. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you from now till noon. It's not right wing. It's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. And welcome to our show today where we have quite an array of topics to discuss and 519-661-3600 is a number you can call if you want to join in on any of those discussions or write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. We'll be talking about everything from the Pan Am Games, which is going to be a Ontario's next big scandal to Ontario Ombudsman, Putin in the Ukraine. The Prince of Pot is coming back to Canada and we have some issues that have been going on again in Caledonia, which I would refer to as first notions about first nations. There was a very interesting event that occurred earlier this month in Caledonia and most of us in this immediate area are unaware of it, even though it occurred only about an hour's drive from here. But first, I want to discuss a related theme to the event in Caledonia because I think it fits in amazingly. And this was all very serendipitous how this came together. This past Tuesday, 
I shared my views on quote-unquote hate crimes with Andrew Lawton on his show on AM 980. We were definitely on the same page when it came to this issue in the sense that there really should be no such thing as a quote-unquote hate crime because hate and crime are really two different matters, and I'm hoping to illustrate that for you with our examples today. My contribution to the conversation was this, but this is a slightly expanded version, that the idea of a hate crime is a non sequitur. One is a thought or a feeling, the hate, the other an action, the crime. A crime can be violent or a crime can be nonviolent, perhaps committed through fraud or misrepresentation or undetected theft even, whereas a thought or a feeling cannot be a crime even when an action is being attached to it. And just for the record, action includes speech. A verbal threat to someone's life or safety is indeed a legitimate crime. But the action is the crime, not the thought. People who kill people while driving drunk do not even have any intention of killing most of their victims, yet we increasingly treat them very much like criminals who do have intentions and motivations for what they have criminally done. The very idea of a hate crime is racist and collectivist at its heart because it always relates to a group. It never relates to just an individual. All all so-called hate crimes deal with collective identities and not with individuals or their actions. Race, gender, sexual preference, economic status, you name it. After all, The motivation for criminal behavior or actions towards another individual can be hate, it can be greed, it can be love, it can be lust, or sometimes even something utterly trivial or non-existent, as in the case of, say, a mental disorder, in which case we wouldn't even call it a crime because of that. Hate, greed, love, lust, these are not actions. They might not even be motivators to action. But they can and do exist, nevertheless. In our audio sample from the TV series First Wave that we heard at the opening of the show, the Native character openly declares his hatred of the white man. And yet, he took him in, healed his wounds, and sent him on his way. He behaved in a civilized manner, despite his feelings and his prejudices. So it is with some disappointment, and perhaps not too much surprise on my part, to keep hearing about incidents where this kind of mutual tolerance, despite negative feelings between people, is still not something that many people can accept or have a hard time getting getting their heads around. And of course, chief among them are some of the Aboriginal folks themselves. I had one such incident brought to to my attention by my good friend and acquaintance, Ted Harlson, by email, and I want to share his email with you today. On September 13, 2012, this was a couple of years ago, uh, Ted Harlson, who's a Freedom Party candidate and political activist in his area, appeared on the Michael Corrin Show after having been arrested for being in Caledonia, participating with one of the regular protests there organized by Gary McHale, who has been a guest on this show on more than one occasion. On that show, Ted explained that the big issue in Caledonia is not about race, but about racial policing. Ted also revealed that he himself, after Michael Corrin asked him uh, what was his background, he said, well, he's a racial mix of Aboriginal and European backgrounds. Uh, Norwegian on the one side and from the Shusha tribe in British Columbia on the other side. And he wrote this 
memo to us on the day of this happening. This was back uh, earlier this month. I think it was the first Saturday of the month. And he writes, it was strange. And he says, I'm sorry he had to leave the protest a little early, but he didn't see anything where he was urgently needed. And he said he promised his wife he wasn't going to get arrested today unless it was absolutely necessary. There you go, a true civil disobedient person who only does it when he has to do it. The day was a little strange for me too, he says. As I left the opposing crowd of people and walked down the road to my car, I noticed a fellow approaching me. He ended up being one of the Native members that were there behind the barricade. This ought to be interesting, I thought to myself. No one else was around. I noticed that he was purposely being casual and seemed to want to talk. He came up to me and started talking roughly, but I saw, but saw that I was not a physical threat, so he just talked. He wanted to know, just what the hell was I doing? And here's the direction of the conversation, says Ted. And person, this person came up to him and said he asked what I was doing. I said, I was carrying the Canadian flag. He then asked me if I knew what I was doing. And why was I with, Gar- with Gary? Why was I carrying a Canadian flag? Because I'm Canadian, I replied. But what about your people? Where are you from? I'm from Kelowna, uh, B.C., and these Canace people are my people, Canace being the group represented by Gary uh, uh, McHale. But B.C. people are the same as here. We own the land, he said. I disagree, I said. What do you mean? The Great Spirit gave us this land. Not to me. Look, I understand that B.C. just, quote, won a land claim out there, but I'm not part of it. But don't you know your own teachings, he said? What people are out there? He was trying to find out which tribe I belonged to. In fact, I said, I disagree with all of it. I have family out there, and I communicate with them as well as some of the people I know from there. I doubt that, that, or, I doubt that or you would not be doing this, he said. Do you know who you are? I'm Ted. What's your name? I said. I'm not telling you. Why? Don't you trust me? No, he said. You have to trust someone. I trust my people, he said. I don't trust any white man. They all lie. They're all liars. Everyone. They're after money and power. Everyone. So are you and your people, I said. No, we want the land, he replied. That's different. But real estate is land, I said. It makes money. I don't trust your people. They're liars and not to be trusted. No comment on that account. Let me tell you the political reason I was holding the Canadian flag there, I said. I agree with equality before the land, before the law. And I made a point of saying this clearly. That's the white man's law, he replied. We have our own law. It doesn't matter, I said. We have to have equality before the law. That's the whole reason for this walk today. That's why I'm here today. We don't care for the white man's law. We have the creator's law, he replied. It doesn't matter, I said. We are equal. He cut me off. What's the matter with you? You're betraying your people. They're not, quote, my people, I said. I was going to explain, but he had run out of patience. Your God will have to recognize, and he cut me off. You are betraying your people. You know what the Oneida people do to people like you who betray their people? They trash them in pieces. No law is just if it doesn't recognize equality before the law, I said. You don't know who you are, he replied. Yes, I do. I'm Canadian, and your God must recognize, and he cut me off again. I'll pray for you, he said. I'll pray for you tonight that you find out who you are. You are only a few. I know only a few, he stopped for a moment. Maybe four who think like you, lost, who betray or are wandering out there. 
I assume he meant out there in the mainstream. That's okay. Four is fine. It's okay. I'm entitled to be different, I said. You don't have freedom, he said. You think you do, but you don't. I know that, I replied. That's why I fought for freedom with the Freedom Party of Ontario. But he doesn't seem interested. He walks away saying, I'll pray for you. I'll pray for you that you find your way. Here, here's my contact number and email address I offered him. And I pulled out my card to offer it to him. No, I don't want your paper. I'll pray for you to find your way, he said. I wouldn't sweat it, I replied. I've heard that all my life. Remember, equality before the law. And he doesn't look back. So that was the purpose of his casual discussion, says Ted. I was given this veil thread under the guise of what the United used to do to, quote, traitors. I think it really bothers them that I was there. Now, I wish to make this clear, concludes Ted. I am my hard-earned ideas, not my biology. I know you all understand that, but I didn't bother with telling him that. I knew it would have been useless. The sickening idea that race determines thoughts is a form of determinism. It was during World War II people believed in polylogism, Indian logic, German logic, Aryan, Jewish logic. This has long been refuted. Since as humans we can choose our own causes, determinism is null and void. We have free choice, including which ideas we choose to accept, and we are not determined, especially not by our body chemistry, says Ted. And that was forwarded to me to bring it to my interest, and I did find it interesting. What I found particularly interesting about this exchange is that the native barricaders seemed to be motivated, no, not, not so much by hate or even by politics as such, but I would say by faith, on a belief in a deity or a, re- or a religion that should be shared by all Aboriginal peoples. How interesting that our opening audio clip from the TV show First Wave was from an episode called Pray for the White Man. And how much the views expressed by Ted's debater were almost exactly like what we heard in that opening scene. What makes this even more weird for me personally, and I said this was very serendipitous, is that I just happened to watch that very episode of First Wave on the same day that Ted sent his email update to me. And suddenly fiction turned into fact. By the way, if you haven't seen the show First Wave, it's not about native disputes or anything like that. It's actually about Nostradamus and alien invasions, so it's a whole different show. But this shows you how much some of the themes in in science fiction relate to the very disputes that we have here on planet Earth. But the religious and tribal undertones explain why Ted reported that it really bothers them that I was there. Ted presenting himself as an independent, rational individual represents a direct threat to any tribal or collectivist mindset, and certainly to any faith-based system of logic, which also might explain why the native protester, despite his curiosity, didn't really want to hear Ted out. This was a culture clash, and evidence of why official multiculturalism is such an unrealistic and unworkable concept. You can have many races and one culture, or you can even have many cultures within one race. History is replete with examples of both, and neither one determines the other. Cultural and religious differences can certainly turn into hate, but hate is not the source of the problem. It is a symptom, and even as such, it still doesn't translate into action or criminal intent. 
and unless there's some criminal action, it actually happens. And that's exactly what did not happen in Caledonia this time. Now, on the other side of the bumper of our upcoming break, you'll be hearing what was then some live coverage of the Caledonia event, as reported by CHCH-TV in Hamilton, after which we'll wrap up our report on this and move on to a number of other issues and topics of the day. It's a lot of action here. We do okay. We'll do a lot better if the vote passes. Fifteen casinos going to start building right away. That means jobs, bro. I suppose there's a downside, too. Yeah, yeah. Gambling fever, more crime. <laughs> Heard it all. It doesn't concern you? Hey, man, I went from 325 an hour digging ditches to 60 grand a year sitting in this air-conditioned casino. No downside there. How does it work, this, uh, this vote I made? The council has six members. Each side will choose a representative to argue opposite sides. Then the council votes. Lone Tree has a big job in his hands. Who's Lone Tree? And one of the members of the tribal council who doesn't want the proposition to pass. He's against the gambling? He thinks the white man's behind it. He's got a lot of sway with the elders because he was some great lawyer. Exposed government fraud and expanded our ownership of lands by a million acres. That's impressive. He's a dinosaur, man. It's not about red and white. It's about green. between native and non-native protesters at the former Douglas Creek Estates in Caledonia that resulted with a police officer supposedly being arrested by protester leader Gary McHale. Despite a lot of shouting and yelling, the protest ended peacefully. Al Sweeney joins us live from Caledonia with more. Hi, Al. Hi there, Melissa. Well, there was a lot of yelling and shouting this afternoon here at this blockade leading to the land occupied by natives here in Caledonia. It was an angry confrontation that went on for the better part of an hour, but it came to a relatively peaceful, if somewhat unusual, end. You're the one walking through? I've been waiting for you. Come on, touch me. Protest leader Gary McHale led nine or ten other non-native protesters to the barricade where he said he wanted to put up a Canadian flag. Natives blocked him again and again as he approached the barricade with a lot of shouting back and forth, but there was no violence. After a while, OPP officers tried to move in between them. Then things got bizarre. McHale made a citizen's arrest on an OPP sergeant, saying the sergeant had unlawfully released someone else who was under arrest. The whole protest ended when McHale left with the OPP to file a complaint at their local detachment. Although one of the native supporters then tried to make a citizen's arrest of McHale for inciting a riot, but that arrest didn't seem to take. Now, earlier, McHale and a native protester were shouting at each other in the street. They decided to build a barricade. We've actually walked down this road numerous times in the last two years, but none of that provoked anything. They decided that because the police and the courts are completely disagreeing with them, that they want to threaten additional violence on this town. That's why there's a barricade. That's why they're here. They're here to intimidate the public to say, you have no rights. If they weren't here, there would be no tension today. He's not telling the truth. He's not telling the truth. 
we're here to create peace so every monks each other in the public can have peace and that's what we're here for so this land claim protest here has been going on for eight years now. These incidents pop up occasionally, and Mikhail says he's going to be back. Now, he says he has the right to go on the land since it's owned by the province of Ontario. The police say they're just trying to keep things peaceful, and the natives are waiting for a settlement of their land claims dispute with nothing happening there. Melissa. Thank you, Al. That's Al Sweeney live tonight in Caledonia. And yes, you heard that right. Gary McHale actually made a citizen's arrest at that event. His wife, Christine McHale, reported. She said, for those of us who were in Caledonia today, well, it was tense but bizarre. Gary actually ended up arresting an OPP officer. First, Gary made a citizen's arrest of a native woman for mischief, then turned her over to the OPP, who promptly released her. So Gary did a citizen's arrest of the OPP officer for releasing in custody without authority. Gary spent two hours giving a statement at the Cayuga OPP detachment, going through the Criminal Code of Canada step by step with detectives, teaching them that the officer had no authority to release the person in custody. Gary received an official incident number, which means the OPP have launched an official criminal investigation into the actions of this OPP officer. That's really a remarkable. And one participant at the Caledonia event named Steve commented, I watched the face and body posture of the young native man who kept goading Gary, inviting, inviting him to touch him so that he could punch him out. The hatred and intent to commit grievous violence was so frighteningly evident in his face. It was the same look I saw last Thursday in the faces of Arabs in front of the Palestine house. And there, too, the police made no arrests. How can anyone in his right mind believe that tolerating this criminality, criminally aggressive behavior, whether in California or Mississauga, will keep peace rather than to encourage more of it? What the hell is going on in this country, he asks. Explains Ted. What I find so obvious is our Canadian lack of individual and property rights protection is having its long-term effect with growing collectivism, which is collapsing of re these rights. I looked at some history on this, he said. I found a similar context in Greece. Ancient Greece had a similar crisis of chaos, but Solon the lawgiver law arose and reminded them of the law. The polis was simply not adhering to the law, and total breakdown was threatening the Greek city-states. The Greeks then relied on themselves, not on the gods, to fix their breach and continued on to greatness. The great breach today is not confusion over application of law, but like Greece, a threat of chaos without law. Refusing to uphold the right of ordinary citizens to walk on the Douglas Creek estate's public property is bad enough. The greater breach is a complete neglect of individual and property rights protection. Decades of subjective powers has disa disabled our systems. The police are being narrowed to puppets of the state. Individual and property rights have become simply too abstract and out of range for our current leaders in their bent to protect group rights. And he's got that right on, on, the, right on the money. Now, other events in the news today. And, you know, I was inspired by a few things you'll be hearing a little later on in the show to reflect upon how long Just Right has been on the air now and upon how we are rapidly entering that phase of the show's history where we can proudly boast, hey, I told you so. 
There are so many issues we've discussed over the years that have pretty much turned out according to our expectations, and I thought I'd start the process today of touching upon as many of them as I can in our remaining time we have between now and noon. And one of them concerns an event occurring now, and, and, you know, I can say I told you so. It's about monopoly and market control, not about drugs or pot. Of course, the Prince of Pot is getting out of jail, is out of jail now technically, although still in, in custody. Prince of Pot, Mark Emery, was once again on the front pages of the London Free Press on July 8th upon the news of his release from a U.S. prison. That was the day when my phone started ringing, much to my surprise. Since then, I've already been contacted by several members of the media about Mark Emery's pending return to Canada, including this station, by the way. Now that his five-year prison sentence in a U.S. Mississippi prison has finally ended. In my interview with AM980's Andrew Lawton, we focused on Mark's past critical role in ending the prohibition of Sunday shopping in Ontario, and of how he went to jail on that issue as well. Having been out of the limelight for over five years, at least directly, Mark will have a lot of reintroductions to go through upon his return to Canada, particularly among the younger generations. Many are not really aware of his past accomplishments or of his major role in the worldwide cannabis controversy. Those are the real reasons behind his incarceration in the first place. Although Mark has already officially completed his sentence, I understand it could be some time before he actually sets foot on Canadian soil. Writes Barry Wells in the July 17th edition of the London Yodeler, quote, It could be sometime in August or even September before Emery's deportation processing is finalized at the private for-profit way station LaSalle Detention Center in, in Gina, Louisiana. Why the delay in setting Emery free after wrapping up his five-year sentence, minus 235 days off for good behavior, at Yazoo City Medium in Mississippi? According to Emery's prison blog of June 30th, quote, you'd think that would be a straightforward process, taking a few days at most, but LaSalle is a for-profit GEO group detention center, and thus they make money for every day that I am here. End quote. Clearly, Emery considers himself a political prisoner and who can, who can legitimately disagree, asks Wells, given the recent and ongoing changes stateside and in Canada to marijuana laws for both medicinal and recreational purposes. End quote. Oh, you couldn't have put it any better, Barry. The situation is outrageous. You know, the government is really getting into the vice business in a big way. Everything from gambling, booze, pot, prostitution. You know, prohibition is all about monopoly of trade and not about banning anything. And that's the I told you so that we've been telling you so since the beginning of this show. Here's just a sampling of some of the pot-related headlines I've been reading in the paper lately. Pot laws may change. The legal weed fallout grass greener when legal in both countries, freeing the weed, rules would force boy to smoke medical pot, referral weed clinic opens in T.O., Washington State moves into pot sales, medical pot producers go for gold, weed investors seek green rush, pot.com boom gets higher and higher, investors warned on medical pot firms, Docs okay pot prescriptions, and finally, medical marijuana producers set their sights high, and on and on it goes. All of this going on while Mark Emery is forced to waste his last five years of his life sitting in a jail cell. 
But now he's coming back, and while some cheer, others will still boo. What you're about to hear next occurred right here at Western University in the year 2000. One of Mark's BC friends and employee at the time named Rob Gillespie got up to the podium at the International Society of Individual Liberties London Conference to introduce Speaker Mark Emery, uh, sort of from the booing side of the debate, can we say that? But he did it in a rather entertaining fashion. And we'll be back on the other side of this break to continue our I Told You So theme of the day. Morning, everybody. Well, good morning. Everybody that's uh, done an introduction has given their impressions of this speaker. I've worked with uh, the next speaker for four years now. Four years now, and uh, while I thought that instead of just because of the position he's in and what he does, instead of giving you my impressions of the speaker, I'll give you the authority's impression of the speaker, just so you know that we're not universally loved. When the shades of night are falling, comes a fellow everyone knows. It's the old dope peddler spreading joy wherever he goes. Every evening you will find him around our neighborhood. It's the old dope peddler doing well by doing good. He gives the kids free samples because he knows full well that today's young innocent faces will be tomorrow's clientele. Here's a cure for all your troubles. Here's an end to all distress. It's the old dope peddler with his seedling happiness. Hi, I'm Mark Emery, the Prince of Pot, and you're listening to 94.9 CHRW. In my job, or rather my loose collection of jobs with the vague connecting themes of making stuff up and pretending, I do a fair amount of coming up with ideas for things I'd like to do and taking them to people to see if they'll let me do them. Now, I'm not intending to moan today about the fact that sometimes they say no. That's okay, it's their money, and anyway, it's polite to pretend that I admit some of my ideas probably aren't very good or wouldn't work, even if I'm secretly sure they all are and would. No, what I'm complaining about is precisely that I'm not told no. What tends to happen instead is a tortuous, touchy-feely discussion about whether or not we all feel that's the best way forward. And once we've established that we all don't, further painful inching towards a pretend consensus that the thing that the person in the room with the most power thinks we should do is actually what we all think we should do. And I don't think that's unique to my job. I think it happens anywhere where one person is basically in charge of others, but it's socially convenient to both parties to act as if that's not the case. And, as I say, it isn't me not getting my own way I object to, it's the social pressure to pretend that me not getting my own way is, now I stop to think about it, what I really wanted all along. Why are we expected to do that? Why are we so uncomfortable with saying, fine, I'll do it your way, but I don't agree? That seems like something we could say cheerfully and civilly enough without anyone having to run off to the loo for a little cry. 
We don't usually hate the boss for making us do it his way. If I was in charge, we think, I wouldn't listen to you either. By now, you may be thinking, oh, for heaven's sake, Mitchell, it's just a harmless social grace. I thought you were in favour of those. And so I am. But this one comes at a price. What they're robbing us of here is the right to use those three beautiful little words that mean so much. Told you so. If after one of these, yes, you're probably right, let's do that, false compromises, it all goes tits up in exactly the way you thought it would, well, you agreed to it, remember? With false collective agreement comes false collective responsibility. You're not only doing it wrong, it's also partly your fault. And I don't want that. I want to be able to say, I did it your way because you made me, and now here's another fine mess you've gotten me into, Stanley. The soldiers who went over the top at the Somme are rightly regarded as heroes, because even though their efforts were doomed, we all understand it wasn't their idea. No one was saying, why on earth did you go over the top? Did you not see the barbed wire and guns? Were the previous 46 doomed sorties not a hint? Idiots. No, they say the Tommies were lions led by donkeys. And whether or not that's true, it's a lot easier to say under the actual circumstances than if the donkeys had got the lions round a conference table, given them all a cup of nasty coffee from the machine, and got them to agree that, yes, running headlong across a minefield into machine gun fire is, on balance, pretty much what we all, from Field Marshal Haig to Wilfred Owen to Private Baldrick, think is the best way forward. Brilliant commentary. With false collective agreement comes a false collective responsibility. That certainly has profound implications and in part explains some of the conflicts and issues we repeatedly hear about in our newspapers. That was David Mitchell speaking from his online soapbox, coincidentally enough called David Mitchell's soapbox. <laughs> when it comes to being able to say I told you so, we would have a near 100% score on dozens if not hundreds of events and trends we've discussed even before they became events or trends that most of the public was aware of. And one of the first was my warning way back in 2008, beware of Putin. And, of course, we're discussing the Ukraine crisis and what has happened lately there in addition to what had happened before. Six years ago and less than a year after Just Right began broadcasting in 2007, one of my top concerns was the rise of Vladimir Putin's influence and the power in Russia. We dealt with this on a few other shows, um, of course, first in 2008 when we were speaking of Garry Kasparov, the chess champion, warning us to be wary of Putin. We spoke of Putin again in uh, 2008, in September again, uh, on Just Right 71, when uh, we were talking about Russia's role in Georgia. You remember when they moved into Georgia. And, of course, again, just a few months ago, on March 6th of this year, when Putin elected to use force in the myth of democracy in the Ukraine. A lot of people don't really know a lot about Putin. This is a simple overview of what he is from Wikipedia. You know, he was born in 1952 and has been the president of Russia since May 17th, 7th, May, uh, May 2012. He previously served as president from 2000 to 2008 and as prime minister of Russia from 1999 to 2000 and again from 2008 to 2012, kind of alternating between president and uh you know, just being um, the chairman and the prime minister. So he's certainly taken a number of uh, titles in, 
in, in terms of maintaining his power. He, of course, for 16 years served as an officer in the KGB, rising to the rank of lieutenant colonel before he retired to enter politics in his native St. Petersburg in 1991, incidentally the city where Ayn Rand was born as Alicia Rosenbaum. He moved to Moscow in 1996 and joined President Boris Yeltsin's administration where he rose quickly, becoming acting president on December 31st, 99, when Yeltsin resigned unexpectedly. Putin won the subsequent 2000 presidential election and was re-elected in 2004. All sounds very democratic, doesn't it? Because of constitutionally mandated terms, Putin was ineligible to run for consecutive presidential terms, and that was when Dmitry Medvedev won the 2008 presidential election and appointed Putin as prime minister. Remember that big debacle. And many of Putin's actions are regarded by the domestic opposition and foreign observers as undemocratic. The 2011 Democracy Index stated that Russia was in a long process of regression that culminated in a move from a hybrid to an authoritarian regime in view of Putin's candidacy and flawed parliamentary elections. In 2014, 2014, Russia was excluded from the G8 group and as a result of its annexation of Crimea. This is interesting and helps explain Putin's popularity in Russia, this next part here. During Putin's first premiership and presidency in 1999 to 2008, now listen to this, real incomes in Russia increased by a factor of 2.5, real wages more than tripled, unemployment and poverty more than halved, and the Russian self-assessed life satisfaction rose significantly. Putin's first presidency was marked by high economic growth. The Russian economy grew for eight straight years, seeing GDP increase by 72% in PPP. As Russia's president, Putin and the Federal Assembly passed into law a flat income tax of 13%, a reduced profits tax, a new land and legal codes. As Prime Minister, Putin oversaw large-scale military and police reform. His energy policy has affirmed Russia's position as an energy superpower, and Putin supported high-tech industries such as the nuclear and defense industries. A rise in foreign investment contributed to a boom such as sectors in the automotive industry. Putin has cultivated a strong man image and is a pop cultural icon in Russia with many commercial products named after him." Russia's being blamed, along with Putin himself, of course, for at least, at the very least, enabling the downing of the commercial Malaysian Airlines Flight 17, which I first heard about only minutes after last week's broadcast of Just Right was over. My, my immediate suspicion was that it wasn't an accident and that was sadly borne out within hours. The confusion over who actually is responsible for the flight being shot down has been a stumbling block for diplomats over the past week, but they all seem determined to blame Moscow i.e. Putin, for the event. Mostly, I think, because people believe that Putin is the only one who has the power to do anything to curb such events. It's a tough call to make. The National Post reported on page A3 of its July 18th edition that, and get this, quote, exactly 35 minutes after Malaysian Airlines Flight 17 crashed, a post on the account of a pro-Russian rebel leader boasted of downing a plane over eastern Ukraine. We warned them not to fly in our skies, Igor Strelkov seemingly wrote on VK, the Russian version of Facebook. The posting follows the news last week. The rebels had obtained Russian-made book surface-to-air missile systems and the shooting down on Monday of a Ukrainian military transport. 
If true, the latest incident would confirm the fearsome reputation of Mr. Strelkov, whose real name is Igor Gherkin, a native Muscovite, and who is as mysterious as he is notorious. Strelkov claims to be fighting for a cause he believes in rather than taking orders from Moscow. The ultranationalist and reactionary fits an increasingly familiar profile in Russia, one that has emerged strongly with the re-election of President Putin. Messianic and militaristic, such figures combine a deep belief in Russia's historic destiny with a contempt for the decadent West while yearning for the re-establishment of a Tsarist empire, they wrote. Now, one thing I found very interesting about both Putin and Gherkin is that you can't go back very far in either of their personal histories before all evidence of their backgrounds completely disappears, at least evidence available to Western observers. Canada's Prime Minister Harper's sanctions against Russia are certainly having an impact on Canadians and Canadian businesses, not only on Russia. One example that crossed my desk was a National Post headline of June 23rd that read, Space Firm Loses Millions to Sanctions. Because everyone is using Russian rockets to get their satellites into space, and astronauts for that matter, Canada's Tories cancelled a Canadian satellite launch as part of its sanctions against Russia. In that article, writer David Pugliese reports that, quote, a Canadian space company is seeking millions of dollars in compensation after the Conservative government scuttled the launch of a satellite because it was scheduled to be sent into orbit on a Russian rocket. The decision to cancel the launch was included as part of the government's actions to punish Russia for its actions during the ongoing crisis in Ukraine. Satellite manufacturer ComDev International Limited, which has facilities in Ottawa and Cambridge, Ontario, right here at home, along with its subs- uh, subsidiary Exact Earth, are trying to obtain compensation for the loss of business because of the scuttled launch. In another related to Russia article appearing in the business section of the July 11th National Post, the headline says it all. Sparks fly. U.S. steel producers accuse Russia of flooding the market. Apparently, Russia is undercutting steel prices in the U.S., prompting U.S. steel producers to call for scrapping the trade deal with Russia and using the Ukraine crisis as an excuse to do so, despite an agreement not to do so, apparently. Quote, the agreement had not stopped Russian producers from undercutting local prices or flooding the U.S. market with a 1,400% shipment increase in the first half of 2014 compared with a year-ago period. Russian prices were also lower than in any other imports sold in U.S. markets. If the agreement is ditched, Russia's uh, Severstal could be hit with anti-dumping duties of 73.5%. Other Russian producers, such as Novolipstek Steel and can't, can't pronounce it, Magnikogorsk Iron and Steelworks, would face duties of 184.5%. Now, if that happens, the U.S. will, in this respect at least, be worse off. Somebody's domestically buying that stuff, right? So beware of Putin. My sense is that Putin seems to understand that the West better than the West does in some ways. When you regard someone as an enemy or competitor, you look at him differently than you might look at yourself. You look for weakness and you study motivations and you can bet he understands a lot of what motivates the West. So I'll say it again. Beware of Putin. Now, just watching my timeline here, <clears throat> got so many other stories that I want to get to, but I think the important one we're heading into now is another thing we've been warning you about, and that is the Pan Am Games. This is an issue that I've actually been fighting since, oh, the 1980s. 
And five, e- five years ago, on our August 27th, uh, 2009 broadcast, just right 117, which you can still tune in to hear, then-Ontario Premier Dalton McGuinty gave his five important reasons for holding the Pan Am Games in Ontario next year, 2015. Here are those five reasons verbatim from Dalton McGuinty. Quote, We want to build better sporting venues and opportunities for our amateur athletes. Two, we want our kids to be inspired by our athletes who will be training and succeeding like never before. We want more of our kids from all backgrounds to pursue amateur sports, and we want all our kids to be healthy. Three, we want to create the over 15,000 jobs in construction that will help us through this global recession, and we want to build legacy venues that will enhance our quality of life over the long term. And four, we have a province that is as as diverse in its people as it is beautiful in its geography. And we want those 250,000 visitors the games attract to come and see us to experience Ontario and to strengthen our tourism industry. And five, we want to instill in Ontarians of all ages an even greater pride in our province, a pride that will grow when we host the Americas, a pride that will grow when our children have more sports opportunities and when our athletes can excel. Well, those were the words of Dalton McGinty in 2009, and he even sold us a bridge in Brooklyn. (laughs) And never mind that reasons one, three, and five are exactly the same, kids and athletes. But there were only two numbers given, 15,000 jobs, 250,000 visitors. Coming up next in the following audio bite is David Menzies from Sun TV back in 2012, on uh, not October, on January 10th. And he discusses the Pan Am Games from his point of view then, and he pretty well hit the nail on the head. I'll be back right after this. Let the games begin. When it comes to Pan Am Games and the taxpayer's dollar, they're actually a scam. What a surprise. Not. Paul Henderson, not the Paul Henderson, the hockey player who scored the winning goal for Team Canada in 1972, the other Paul Henderson who fronted Toronto's 1996 Olympic bid, recently caused a commotion in the sporting community. Henderson sent an open letter to Ontario Premier Dalton McGuinty warning that the 2015 Pan American Games will come in billions over budget. According to Henderson, the $2.4 billion budget is unrealistic given the scope of proposed new buildings and facility renovations. Organizers, he argues, have also failed to accurately budget for numerous soft costs such as extra policing. In fact, the price tag might be more than double the original estimate. Look, I don't want to say I told you so. Actually, that's not true. I love saying I told you so. But ever since Toronto first announced it wanted to host the 2015 Games, I've been sounding the alarm that the Pan Am Games is a dog, and a dog with fleas. For years, Toronto's 2015 Pan Am Games Committee promised this athletic gala would prove to be an enormous shot in the arm for the city. For starters, the committee claimed the Pan Am Games would generate close to $2 billion in economic activity. The 
building of the facilities alone will supposedly create 17,000 jobs and the games will lure an estimated 250,000 tourists to the greater Toronto area. Yeah, apparently there's a quarter million sports fans out there with a severe case of Pan Am fever. And if you believe that whopper, I'm currently taking offers for a bridge for sale in a certain New York City borough. According to Toronto's Pan Am profits, going full speed ahead with a multi-billion dollar investment during dire economic times actually makes great fiscal sense. David Peterson, the former Ontario Premier and current Pan Am promoter, crowed a while back that snagging the Pan Am Games was all about building a sustainable legacy. Hate to be a party pooper here, but don't believe the hype. Here's a top four list as to why Toronto should do whatever it can to pull out of hosting the 2000 Pan Scam Games. Number one, wrong place, wrong time, wrong economic conditions. Funding a bread and circuses gala such as the Pan Scam Games is a bad idea in good times, but in a less than stellar economy, it's truly awful. When Winnipeg hosted the Games in heady 1999, the city reported an operating loss. Meanwhile, a hope for increase in tourism to offset the loss never did materialize. Keep in mind that Toronto's debt load is already pegged at nearly $3 billion. In addition to all levels of government investing hundreds of millions of dollars, the Toronto Committee is counting on corporate sponsorship money. But from whom? Even the likes of NASCAR and Formula One are having trouble keeping all their blue chip sponsors on board. Who's champing at the bit to, pack, to back the pen scam games? Number two, what legacy? Proponents of the Pan Scam Games speak glowingly of the legacy the facilities will have long after the games are over. Really? One of the required multi-million dollar infrastructure nuggets Toronto must construct for 2015 is a velodrome for cycling. How curious that less than 15 years after Montreal hosted the 1976 Olympic Games, a chainsaw was taken to the teak track of the Montreal Velodrome to convert that facility into a zoological garden. And that city's now obsolete Olympic Stadium has been already abandoned by its major tenants. And decades later, they're just now getting around to paying off that Olympic-sized bill. Wow, what a legacy. Number three, the fiscal folly of mega projects. As just about every Olympic Games has proven, the estimated budget for construction facilities is always ridiculously low, only to balloon into the stratosphere once the concrete starts to pour. And take a wild guess who's always left holding the bag. In the book Five Ring Circus, Myths and Realities of the Olympic Games, author Christopher A. Shaw notes that the original estimate for the Vancouver 2010 Winter Games was $1.68 billion in construction costs, plus an additional $588 million in operating costs. As it turned out, the Vancouver construction costs alone topped an astonishing $5 billion. And you know, Torontonians have already experienced mega project sticker shock, courtesy of the Skydome. This whiz-bang multi-purpose stadium was supposed to cost about $150 million, although the final tally was closer to $600 million. Oddly, unlike every other piece of downtown Toronto real estate over the past two decades, Skydome's market value actually plunged over the years, allowing Rogers Communications to purchase it for a mere $25 million in 2004. Incredible! Four, 
Nobody cares about the Pan Am Games. Finally, the most prevailing argument against staging the Pan Am Games is nobody gives a darn about the Pan Am Games, including the athletes who compete in the Pan Am Games. Indeed, at the 1999 Pan Am Games in Winnipeg, the U.S. team was comprised of second stringers. Meanwhile, media coverage of the event was virtually non-existent. Granted, decades ago, there was a time when the Pan Am Games meant something and managed to attract some of the best amateur athletes. But these days, when it's not an Olympic year, most elite amateur athletes focus exclusively on their own world championship games. The Pan Am Games are irrelevant. Poor Toronto. Spurned twice by the International Olympic Committee, it gets the Pan Am Games as a consolation prize. It is reminiscent of the sales competition depicted in the 1992 film Glengarry Glen Ross. First prize, Cadillac Eldorado. Second prize, set of steak knives. And the Pan Scam Games is a set of rusty steak knives and a costly set at that. Indeed, the specter of brand new multi-million dollar taxpayer-funded edifices devoid of spectators for athletic events nobody wants to see handball anyone is downright vulgar in this day of fiscal restraint. Here's hoping Toronto will do the right thing and bail on the Pan Am Games, the athletic world's version of a pig in a poke. And of course, that didn't happen. The Pan Am Games are coming to Toronto next year. And Antonella Artuso writes in the Toronto Sun on October 20, 24th, end of last year, Ontario won't release security and transportation costs for Pan Am Games, says the headline. And Tourism, Culture and Sports Minister Michael Chan said he's very concerned that any number would be premature. The security budget for the 2010 Winter Olympics in Vancouver ballooned far beyond its original $175 million to $925 million. That's almost tenfold. The Pan Am Games are a new experience for Ontario, and the budget for security and transportation incorporates many moving parts, including multiple locations, Chan said. The province doesn't want to fall into the trap of providing a number that could very well have to be updated down the road, he said. You know, what he's saying is, we're not going to tell you what we're going to spend on this, so we spent it, and then you can't complain about the costs ballooning, right? You spend first, charge them later, don't even tell them what it was going to cost. Um, you know, the article says the overall 1.4 billion games budget already excludes a number of costly items, such as the athlete's village, and temptation will be for the government to hide skyrocketing expenses in other budgets. The games have already drawn negative attention for the questionable expenses and eye-popping salaries of senior executives of the organizing committee, it says. You know, they simply have no shame, those who rob us so blind for these bread and circuses spectacles in the midst of economic pain. David Peterson, the former Liberal uh, uh, Premier of Ontario, got away with his Pan Am Games bid this time. Unlike his experience here in London when he ran up against the No Tax for Pan Am Games Committee, consisting of myself and Mark Emery, plus 1,100 local supporters who backed our committee. But that story has been told before. Today's story is about Ontario's next equivalent to the gas plant scandal, the pending 2015 Pan Am Games, another pending I told you so, and you don't have to be able to read a crystal ball to see this one coming. This is a fiscal and organizational train wreck that's already derailed. Interesting commentary by Matt Gurney in the National Post of July 11th in speaking to David Peterson. 
And he says it's a funny way to build infrastructure. In most parts of the world, he says, if you need to build a $2 billion in new civic in- infrastructure, you build $2 billion in new civic instru- in infrastructure. In Ontario, though, you wait till you, you have committed yourself to hosting a large international event, then you get to building. It seems like a silly way to run a city or province, but David Peterson says that's the way it is. He's a man who's been behind large infrastructure projects while in government and has worked to advance some outside government too. He knows of what he speaks, he says. And without something like the games to set a deadline and actually get governments moving, he noted, while plans get talked about and talked about and debated and refined, nothing actually gets done. I wish I'd been able to disagree with Mr. Peterson, Gurney writes, when he claimed that you need something like a Pan Am Games to get anything done, but I couldn't. He's right. So here we are, Toronto and area soon to be host to a relatively low-profile sporting event that will be disruptive and expensive and is being paid for almost entirely by the taxpayer. There's little real hope of the Games providing a major long-term tourism boost, but at least we'll get a housing complex and a train out of it. That's something to be grateful for. It'd be nice if we just build the things we wanted and needed without having to layer on costly events, but the former premier is right. That's just not how things are done around these parts, end quote. Well, I'm afraid that Gurney has swallowed the Peterson Kool-Aid on this one, even though the Association of Sporting Events is linked to infrastructure projects. That's something that we have been saying on this show. There's also an understandable psychology to this. It's like how a lot of folks just don't ever get around to cleaning up their house till they expect guests to arrive. Or how a lot of folks, you know, don't get around to infrastructure and cosmetic repairs on their own homes until they're just about to sell them. But none of this justifies Peterson's rationale. None of this is necessary if the intent is just to build an upgrade common to all infrastructure and not for special interest, which is where it's going, which is why those investments always go by the wayside. After all, even after we defeated the last Pan Am Games bid here in London, Ontario, the lack of events did not stop London from going ahead and building the sporting facilities that they wanted anyway. Because the toxic culture that forces taxpayers to pay for non-governmental purposes is the culture that's always with us in government, with or without sporting events. They will continue to spend our money without our consent or without our permission, planning a, a, a new entertainment center here in the city now. If anything, Peterson's argument is a good reason for never hosting sporting events because then the politicians would never get around to spending our money on completing their infrastructure projects. If only that were true, and maybe we'd all be better off that way. In any case, hey, I told you so that we'd only be with you until noon, and that time's rapidly approaching, which means it's time to invite you to join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, and be right back here. Color it to black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright As the bulletin says, he is particularly clever at selling public parks and monuments to these rural types. He convinces them that he's one of their own kind. Sorry, Chief, the line's busy. Now, uh, Mr. Clampett, how would you like to buy the Hollywood Bowl? <laughs> Uh, where are you going? Well, I gotta go out and fetch Granny. She's, uh, she takes care of buying everything for the kitchen, like pots and pans and bowls. 